please open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, good morning. Keep your Bibles open there to Psalm 2. Um, it's great to be here. Have it open there in front of you as we go through our summer of Psalms. Now, welcome to everyone here. It's great to see so many back here this morning, but also welcome to those online. Um, it, it is a funny season of life at the moment, and, uh, and it's great to see so many back, some who have been in isolation, some who have been on holidays, but also for those online, those of you who are either got COVID or those of you who are in isolation, we're thinking of you, but thank you for joining us as we, we open up God's Word this morning. This is God's Word, and it's great to have it in front of us as we, we work our way through it. It's a summer of Psalms, you know. For some of you, I suppose... You know, as you looked at that video, you think, yes, I've had a great summer. Others are like, it hasn't been as refreshing as I would like. But let's be refreshed by God's word now today. Let's pray. Father, speak to us now. Change us and may we delight all the more. And may our panic turn to peace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Sydney University Evangelical Union uh, it's it's a it's a, a Christian organisation. It's a union that's in the University of Sydney, and it's comprised of men and women who follow Jesus. And one of the parts of being a part of that union, to be a member of this evangelical union at Sydney University, you have to tick the box that says Jesus is Lord. Now that makes sense as followers of Jesus. Now what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Well it means he's above all things. It means Jesus is the Christ, that he is the God above the universe. It means that he's the one who we submit to. He is the one whom is the way, the truth and the life. And there is no other way to God except through Jesus. It's actually a very big thing to think about Jesus is Lord or Jesus is Christ. Like it's it's got big ramifications to say that Jesus is Lord. And so to be a member of this union, you have to tick the box to say that Jesus is Lord. Now in February 2016, this evangelical union were facing pressure for the last three years. They were facing pressure from the university unions. Why? They had an ultimatum for this evangelical union. Here's the ultimatum. You cannot... Ask people to be members of your union and say that they have to tick the box that Jesus is Lord. They said, if you're doing that, that's discrimination. And so the ultimatum was put to them. Either you remove that from being a part of being the part of this union, that Jesus is Lord, or you will be deregistered as a union at this university. 
If you're a follower of Jesus today, how do you respond when you hear that? I wonder as you think about Jesus being removed as Lord or, or having to not tick that box, do you start to fear? Have you got a sense of panic? Do you think, oh, what's happening to the country of Australia? And maybe you become overwhelmed with it. A sense of anxiety and panic and fear because you think, hang on, this is not the country I was brought up in. Or I wonder, how do you feel? Maybe you, how do you feel about the religious discrimination bill that's going before the, before the federal government? How do you feel about that? Are you worried that maybe it won't get through? Maybe things will have to get changed that will affect us and so you panic and you're worried and you're afraid. Because Jesus is Lord. Each day the media, it feeds us fear and worry and panic. But maybe you're, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, and you just go, well, James, really, what's the big deal about taking Jesus out of that union? Like, what's the big deal? Jesus is, it's not that big a deal, is it? And I hope today, whether you're someone who's possibly feeling afraid and panicked, or whether you're someone here today who's gone, well, is it really a big deal that Jesus is Lord? Why do we need it in there? I hope that Psalm 2 is really going to help us. Are you panicked? Are you worried? Are you afraid? Because see, last week, we were doing a summer of Psalms. Last week, we looked at Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is all about the happy life. It's about the happy lifestyle. It's about the path that leads to destruction or the path that leads to life. There is two paths in life. And the happy lifestyle last week we saw was we are to delight in God's Word. We saw that the happy lifestyle is someone who meditates on God's Word. But we also saw that the happy lifestyle is someone who is deeply rooted in the Word of God. And today, we're coming to Psalm 2. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the introduction to the whole of the Psalter. From Psalm 1 to 150. If you want to understand what's going to come about in the rest of the Psalms, read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Psalm 1 starts with blessed and Psalm 2 ends with blessed. So it's an introduction. Have a look at verse 1 to Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire? And the people plot in vain. Now, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, there's a contrast here between Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, last week, we saw that you are to meditate on God's word day and night. Now, in Psalm 2, the people are plotting. Now, that word plotting there is the same Hebrew word as meditate. So in Psalm 1, those who meditate on the, the word of God, they're, they're meditating on God. But here, the people are meditating against God. How do you feel about that? How do you feel when people meditate and plot and rage against God and say Jesus is not the Christ? How do you feel about that? Do you panic? Because here's our first point. There's four movements in this psalm. The first one is they conspire together for freedom. Now that leaves us with a sense of anxiety and fear. They're conspiring together for freedom in verses 1 to 3. There's an international conspiracy going on. And it's against God and his anointed one. Have a look there at verse 2. See, in verse 1, the nations, some translations will say they're raging. Others say they're plotting. Verse 2, the earth rises up. The kings now rise up. The rulers band together. It's against Yahweh. It's against Yahweh and against his anointed one. So Yahweh is the God who created the universe, the one who created the stars, the heavens, who created the cosmos, the one who made Adam and Eve. This one is who they're they're plotting against. They're conspiring against him. But not only that, they're, they're against his anointed king. The king. They're scheming. 
Now, if you're someone in the Old Testament like Israel, as you would have heard maybe as the Egyptians may have schemed, if you heard that Babylon or Assyria, whatever century it was in, if you heard them plotting against the king of Israel or against Yahweh, there would be a sense of panic because Israel really is small in comparison to Babylon. Babylon were the world powers of the day. Prior to that was Assyria. They had so much power that, that if, if you were an Israelite and you heard that they were plotting, you'd be thinking, oh man, I'm worried, I'm panicking. It would appear a major threat to the nation of Israel. But even in the 21st century, as followers of Jesus, we're, we're a minority, we're small, we're little. And surely a threat like that may bring us down. See, in the Old Testament, when it, when it says it's against the Lord and against his anointed, in the, in the Old Testament, a king was a representative of God. So to conspire against the king is to conspire against God. See, in Babylon, if you're the Babylonian king, you are representing the Babylonian gods. And so here, they're conspiring against the king is to say, I don't want anything to do with the king of Israel, so therefore I don't want anything to do with God himself, your God. Now, it is possible that maybe in Psalm 2, that the people of Israel, as they've gone in and God has conquered the land, and as Israel filled the promised land, there is a chance that kings and people came under the Israelite rule. And over time, they've come and said, you know what, we're sick of Yahweh, we're sick of this, we're going to plot to to free ourselves. Did you notice that? It's verse 3. They're, they're, they're wanting to free themselves from that rule. Now, one of my favourite movies of all time is Braveheart. It's a great movie, Braveheart. Braveheart pictures, it's a story about Scotland and England. It's a story about the Scottish and the English. It's a story about William Wallace who comes home and he is sick of the tyranny of King Edward the Longshank. He wants the Scottish people to be free. And so the movie is all about William Wallace getting their freedom. And there's this point in the middle of the movie where William Wallace, Robert Bruce, the Bruce, they're all seated around this table and they're plotting, going, how can we free ourselves from the King of England? At the end of the movie, you see him yell out, freedom, here, that, 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 in William Wallace is like, we will only be happy once we're free from England's rule. And verse 3, look at that, let us break their chains. Let us throw off their shackles. That's what it's saying. Let's, we don't want to be under their rule any longer. No longer submit to the king. We want life our way and our free way. And actually, we want to distance ourselves from this king. And I wonder, do you feel like today whether that's going to different today? People seeking freedom. We all want freedom. We're all seeking freedom in some sense. Freedom to decide what's wrong and right for me. Freedom for me to choose what I desire as the happy life. Freedom to decide what I think the happy lifestyle is. What it means, you know, freedom to choose my sexuality or to be who I want to be. I want to be free. I want those chains and those shackles gone. And even as followers of Jesus, we struggle with this, don't we? The sinful flesh yearns for this glorious independence of I'm the centre of this universe. And so as we try to free ourselves, you know those white lies come out where we've been caught out because we want to keep ourselves above ground. So we'll, we'll share a little white lie. And we thought it would set us free, but now we've got to remember all the lies that we've told over the last week. 
the, you know, we have that true happiness. We think, the, the, if I just free myself from the government, then I'll be set. You know? Life would be better for me. You know, I wouldn't have to pay taxes. And so we exaggerate on our tax return. Or, or maybe you're a young, a young teenage boy or a young teenage girl and you've got all these emotions and hormones and everything going around in your body and you're just like, well, can't I just express myself however I want in life? Who, you know, can't I just be with whoever I want, whenever? And surely that's, if I could just have that freedom, then I'd have the happy life. Now, a couple of years ago, I, we were away, we were up, way up the coast, and a couple of years ago, I like going through bookshops, and so I just came across a book, and it was by Richard Dawkins. He's one of the renowned known atheists. And the book was just called Outgrowing God. So, what, what Richard Dawkins was saying is, come on, people, we've just outgrown God. We don't need him. Move on. So the whole book was just a premise. We, we don't need to. We've, we've moved on from God. Let's just free ourselves from this thought of having even a God of the universe. Let's just move on. Conspire together for freedom. It's, why do the nations conspire? Have a look at verse 1 again. Why do the nations conspire? Why do the nations rage? Now that word why there, you know, you've got, we've got to ask good questions as we read the Bible. Now is this a why of, hmm, I'm puzzled by what's happening around me? Is the psalm going, I just don't know why they're conspiring and why they're raging. Now that's not the why that this question is asking. It's not a, I'm really confused by what's going on around. Why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? No, no, no. It's a, it's a why of surprise. It's a why of surprise. It's like you're talking to your boys or your kids and saying, why are you doing that? Because you just totally know it's not going to work. See, it's a why of surprise. It's being surprised. Like, why do you do this, says the psalm? Why are you raging? Why are you plotting? Because see, in verses 1 to 3, this is a, this is a zoomed-in focus, right? We're on, the, we're on planet Earth, and we're talking about the people who are walking around plotting and scheming and raging. And so we've got this really zoomed-in view. People wanting freedom. But actually, it's no threat at all, verses 4 to 6. So we go from this zoomed-in picture to a really zoomed-out picture. Do you, re- do you really realise who you're dealing with, says the psalmist? Do you really realise who Yahweh is and the certainty of his king? You know, whether you knock the king off or not, it's, 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 I'm Yahweh. I'm the king. This plotting will do you no good. As much as you want to free yourself from the king, you won't be. You know, it was Yahweh who delivered the people out of Israel, out of Exodus, out of Egypt, part of the Red Sea. It was Yahweh who, who brought the promised land to them. And it's so easy for you and me to think that this universe revolves around me, don't we? We think that the planet Earth, with its 50 billion galaxies that we know of, we think the world revolves around me. And so we zoom in and we think everything is about me. We think that the most important person in this world is me. And it's me who should get all the praise. It's me who should get all the glory. But Psalm 2 does something very different here. It moves from verse 1. It moves from the people to a very, very bigger perspective and puts things in place. See, in verse 1, oh man, we sit there and as we think about people conspiring, as we think about people wanting to take Jesus' Lord down, we panic in that moment. 
We panic in that moment. We may be anxious. We may be feared. You know, if only our political party would get in, we think that if our political party of our choice does not get in, our world is going to fall down around us. But what does the psalmist do in verses 4 to 6? It takes you from this little planet and it takes you to the throne room of God himself. Have a look. It's no threat at all. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Do you notice this change? It goes from planet earth and it just goes to the God who has transcended over and going, what are you? I'm enthroned on my throne and nothing can touch it. You know, I am, um, as a kid, you know ants' nests? I like ants' nests as a kid because you know what I'd do? I'd stir them up. You'd go around, you'd a stick and you'd stick sticks down. You'd put rocks down to try and block the hole. I'd tip petrol down the you know you just do all these crazy things because you just want to stir the the ants up and even as a six-year-old or even as a seven-year-old even as a ten-year-old you know how much harm are those ants going to do me they're going to do me nothing like I could just do it I could sit there I could sit back on my chair and those ants do nothing to me and here in the sum is taking us giving us a much transcendent view of God now here's don't take my illustration too far right God is not provoking us Right? Like I was provoking the ants. Now God's not there poking and prodding us and, and provoking us. No, no, the, the, the point is God is up here. He is enthroned. He laughs. <laughs> he, he, he laughs. But it's not a laugh of laughing at you in your sin and your stuff-ups and the things that you've got wrong. It's not that kind of laugh. It's a... It's a laugh of, do you really think that freeing yourself from my king and me will give you a better life? See, Psalm 1 is just before it. So do you think, really think that if you free yourself from me, you're going to have a better fulfilled life, that you're going to have a better satisfied life? Do you really think that freeing yourself will do that? They plot to remove the chains. And God's like, do you know where I'm seated? I know what's best for my life. I know what's best for a happy marriage. I know what's best for my life as a 15-year-old. I know what's best for my sexuality. I know what's best for my career and my job and what it means to follow and have the happy lifestyle and where it is to find those things. And so we want to free ourselves from it. But God says, look, do you really think freeing yourself from my way is going to bring the free, free life? See, deep down, we think freeing ourselves from God is where true freedom is to be had. And Adam and Eve thought exactly the same thing in Genesis chapter 3. And look how it turned out. But actually, instead, we are, as we free ourselves from God, as we want to free ourselves from God, guess what's happening? We're actually enslaving ourselves to a finite being myself and your own wrong and right and what life should look like. It's no threat at all, these plots, these rage. Uh, on Friday, Friday's my day off, and so on Friday um, this week, I took my boys to the night session of the Sydney International Tennis at Sydney Stadium at Ken Rosewell Arena. So I took the boys, we went and watched a game of tennis. Now, tennis is one of the best games ever. It's a beautiful game. And so we, watched, we got to watch the last set of Andy Murray win. I don't know whether he won last night, but it was, a, it was a great night of tennis. Then we got to watch the women play. It was a great women's set. Then we got to watch the men again. It was a really great night. I, I, we just had a ball watching tennis. It was so good. As you saw, men and women hit it out as they went into this challenge trying to hit the ball back and forth. It's great. It's a great sport. Now, I don't mind playing tennis, and I want to win. And so as you play tennis, as you're hitting the ball back and forth, and you sometimes hit the ball out, and it's out by about two inches. 
it's like you're so annoyed. And I think to myself, wouldn't it be better if you could move the tennis line one foot longer and then I'd win more games? Imagine if they just made the court a little bit wider, made the net a little bit lower, my serve would be better. Like, it would be great, wouldn't it? But I want to ask you a question about tennis. Like, how fun would tennis be if we removed the lines? How fun would tennis be if we removed the net? Imagine if we had no fence around tennis. Tennis would have no meaning, it would have no life. If we removed the service lines, if we removed the baseline, it would actually lose life. Whereas in fact, actually the tennis net, the lines, the service lines, the baselines, they give life and meaning and make the game alive. And so that's with God and God and his boundaries and his teaching and his counsel. It actually gives satisfaction, it gives fulfillment. So when tennis is played accordingly, it's a beautiful game to play. The happy lifestyle, it's found in, in God. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, whom the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. Jesus sets us free. I have installed. Have a look at verse 5 and 6. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Now, for us, we think, oh, that's pretty cool. But if you're a Babylonian king, if you're an Assyrian king, Israel and the Mount Zion's like 10 acres. Right? Babylon's got much better palaces, much better hills, more people. But this is where the king is installed. It's very significant. And, and Christianity may seem insignificant in this world, it may seem small, it may seem no threat. And people go, ah, oh, it's only that. What's the matter for our life? And in fact, it's actually no threat too big that can stop God. Nothing can stop God and his king. It, can't, it doesn't stop him because he has a king that's on mission. That's our third point. The king is on mission. Have a look at verse 7 to 9. In verse 7, the king leads the people in the ways of God. Have a look at that. Do you notice that? I. Now, in verses 4 to 6, the king, we, we've gone to the throne room of God. Now we've come to the king and the king speaks to each one of us now. I will proclaim the word. See, the king leads the people in the ways of God. In verse 8, did you notice that the king is on mission for God. Have a look at that. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. It's, it's the kingdom's going to go out and it's gonna, people are going to come. But not only is this king on mission, but the king is also a king who will bring judgment and rule. Have a look at verse 9. You will break them with a rod of iron and you'll dash them to pieces like pottery. This is pretty scary stuff when you think you can free yourself from the king. And God's there in his throne room and then the king speaks. You cannot do that. See, the king is on mission for God. This king is on mission. See, in a way, as you first read Psalm those thousands of years ago, you know, we had King David. We had King Solomon, you know, possibly Psalm 2. Some people think Psalm 2 was just a psalm that you read at their coronation as they became king. But also you had Josiah, you had Hezekiah, you had good kings, but you had bad kings. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says to, to, to King David, because we have bad kings, we have good kings. He says, though, even despite you having good and bad kings, your throne will be eternal. He said there's going to come a king one day who will be established on the throne forever. Now, I want you to pick up. So we're going to just do a bit of hard work for a moment. So I need your attention, right? Ready to keep going. 
You have to grab your Bible. You're going to have to turn somewhere. But before we do that, look at verse 2 again. Against the Lord and against his anointed. Now that word anointed, if we were to translate that into Greek and then into our English, the Greek word that we translate that to is Christos, which is, in English, Christ. And so I want you to go to Luke. Luke chapter 24. So stay with me. This is really important for us just to do a little bit of hard work for a moment. Those online, we want to dig in here just for a moment. Go to Luke chapter 24. It's a really critical moment. Luke chapter 24. And as you go to Luke chapter 24, we can do this in Matthew, we can do this in Mark, but we're going to do it in Luke. But in Luke chapter 3, we see Psalm 2 quoted. Now, Psalm 2, I think, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 9, it talks about your son. In Luke 3, your son. We could go down that line into Hebrews as well. We go to Acts chapter 13, but I'm going to go to Luke chapter 24 for a moment. Have a look there if you've got your Bibles with you. Luke chapter 24, verse 46. This is really crucial for us just to slow down for a moment. This is what is written. The Messiah, now that's actually Christos, that's Christ. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. So straight away, Jesus is saying, I'm this anointed one. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached. I want you to notice this next line. Will be preached in his name, in the name of Jesus, to where? To all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now go to Acts chapter 1. We've got to pick up this theme for a moment of this king. Acts chapter 1. And I want you to go to verse 7. Acts chapter 1, verse 7, and then we're going to just go to Acts chapter 4, so hang in there. Acts chapter 1, verse 7 says, It is not for you to know the times or the dates. So Jesus is speaking to his friends, his followers, before he ascends into heaven. It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be what? My witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. You see this, it goes out, and where does it end up? To the ends of the earth. See, this king, this message is going to go to the ends of the earth. Now, if you go to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, I want to read verse 23 to 29, because it's really important for us to, to understand what's going on here in Acts. See, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they wanted to preach about Jesus. They're proclaiming the name of Jesus, and guess what happens? The Sanhedrin, the leaders are like, sorry, you cannot preach that Jesus is Lord. You cannot preach that he is the only way by which you can be saved. This is the name. You cannot preach that Jesus is Lord. And Peter and John said, but that's the only name in which you can be saved. See, the government at that time are going, you've got to stop saying that Jesus is the only way. And so they get released and have a look on their release in verse 23. Peter and John went back to their own people and reported to all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Look what he's talking about here. You made everything. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And guess what psalm they go to quote? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against who? Against the Lord and against who? That word anointed there is Christ. 
against him, the Messiah. And who did it? Well, Herod, Pontius Pilate, they met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They did what your power and will has decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your words. Have you noticed that they don't ask their situation to get changed? Have you noticed that they're not worried about their situation, saying, hey, God, take it all away from us? No, they go to Psalm 2 in this moment of possible panic, in this moment of anxiety, in this moment where the government says, no, 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 Jesus is not Lord. What do they do? They say, no, give us boldness to preach Jesus because he's on mission. Boldness to preach about Jesus as the Sanhedrin rage against him. See, Psalm 2 is a psalm so that we do not panic. It's a psalm for us that are watching online. This is a psalm so that we do not fear. It's a psalm so that we aren't anxious. It's a psalm that reminds us to press on because who is enthroned? Jesus is enthroned. God is enthroned. God is good and God is gracious and God is merciful. It's a great reminder that the king is on mission. See, this psalm gives us a bigger picture of who Jesus really is. Maybe for you, maybe you've got this view of Jesus that, hey, it's my ticket to heaven. And I'm just going to somehow get through this life no matter how or what's happening around us. Hopefully I can just get through and I just can't wait till Jesus returns and then he'll put things right. Maybe someone said, hey, come down the front Come and say a prayer, but you actually didn't know who you're coming and submitting to. See, Psalm 2 reminds us in this that it's not about just waiting our time out until Jesus returns. It says, no, he's on his throne now. And through Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, people are coming to this king and they are falling at his feet. Jesus is doing this. But now the king also, though, gives us this gracious warning as well in verses 10 to 12. It's a warning to everyone in this room but it's a gracious warning it's a warning to the kings it's a warning to the nations it's a warning to every one of us here today because all of us have turned and we wanted to set ourselves free of God but this is a warning to turn back and why do I say it's a gracious warning it may seem this is pretty if you go back to Psalm 2 this may seem quite confronting to think that Jesus will dash them to pieces like pottery But see, it's a gracious warning because God doesn't have to warn us about the punishment that we deserve. And yet here he says, this king says, be warned. Be warned. Have a look at verse 10. He says to the kings, be wise, be warned. What that means is be warned, accept your situation, know who you are, accept your situation and turn back. He says in verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule. Serve this king. But also verse 12 says, kiss the son. Kiss his son. Now it seems like, what's that mean? You know, kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead you to destruction. I think sometimes we have a very small view of who Jesus is. We see him as this little saviour that we we say yes to, and he's going to get us through to the, and hopefully we get through at the end. But no, no, no. So this Psalm two paints a very big picture of a gracious king, but also a very powerful king. And kiss the son. This is what it means. It means to submit to him. It means to fall at his feet. To kiss his, it's to bow down and to say, you are the one who is enthroned 
on the throne. It's to submit to his good and freeing rule. It's a question, have you humbly submitted? I want to ask the question today to every single one of us in this room. Have you kissed the feet of Jesus? Today, have you kissed the son's feet? Have you kissed the son's feet? And what does that mean to come and kiss the feet? It's to be humble. It's to to come to the foot of the cross and to receive grace and mercy, forgiveness and redemption. To kiss the feet is to say, I do not have my life together. I'm going to come and rest at this king's feet. It's a beautiful thing to see that. Like As we see this, this king who is in his wrath can smash us like pottery, we also see this same king who says, now is the time. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I am gentle and lowly. You can come and I'll have you. Do you notice what he's saying? He's saying, come messed up. He's, come, he's saying, don't come with all, all, all your life together. He's actually saying, no, no, those who will humble themselves will come to me. That's what it means to come and to kiss the feet of Jesus. Or he's going to come back one day. And as Revelation 19 says that this king, he is going to be the one who stomps the winepress of God's fury and his wrath. So come and kiss the feet of Jesus today. It's a big picture, isn't it, of who Jesus really is? Oh, I wonder if maybe you've been a follower of Jesus, but it's sort of just been an insurance card to get you out of hell and into heaven. And you actually go, wow, hang on, who is Jesus? He's someone we, we come and bow the knee to. We come and bow down in humility towards him. Because, see, either we're going to delight and meditate in Jesus, or we're going to delight and meditate on the path to destruction. Either we're going to take refuge in Jesus or we're going to take refuge in ourselves. Did you see how the psalm ends? Blessed the happy life of those who come and take refuge in the Son and we come and take refuge at the cross in Jesus and his finished work. He is the one who, who, who we can take refuge in from the wrath of God because he took the wrath of God. Blessed are those who come and take refuge in his Son now. This psalm reminds us that liberating freedom, it comes from serving Jesus, not freeing yourself from Jesus. Do you say Freedom comes from serving the king, not from, serving, from removing yourself from the king. I wonder today if you've come here and you're not a Christian, and you just thought, well, what's it matter about Jesus, really? I hope today maybe you might start to picture that actually, no, 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 if this is who Jesus is and he is sitting above the universe and he's enthroned and he's been shown to be enthroned through his life, death and resurrection, maybe it's something you need to do, with, you need to do business with God today. Or maybe if you're a follower of Jesus, whether the discrimination bill goes in our favour or not, It doesn't matter. We don't need to panic. We do not need to fear. We do not need to be worried about tomorrow. It means nothing. And, you know, I probably, you know, might get a bit of hit back about this, but it makes buying into conspiracy theories an absolute waste of time. Where's Jesus sitting? The God of the universe is enthroned. He says, you think you can plot against me? 
You think you can free yourself from me? And as much as the nations will rage, God says to his people, I've got it. I've got it. God wins. I've had the victory. Jesus says it's finished. It is done. I've got it. We don't need to panic or fear about tomorrow. See, in the 21st century, nations are raging and plotting to free themselves, whether they know they're trying to free themselves from Jesus, but they're raging and plotting to free themselves from the king. It's a real reality in the 21st century, but guess what? Over nearly 2,000 years ago, it was the same problem then, where Pontius Pilate, the leader of the Gentiles, where Herod, who was appointed by the emperor of Rome, the people of God themselves, who were in waiting for this Messiah and their leaders, what does the Bible say? That all of them were there plotting and raging against Jesus, crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify the king. And we sit there as well, and we were there crying that out. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And how can we be certain that it's worth kissing the feet of the, the king? Because even though as we plotted against the king, God in his sovereign plan used that plotting so that Christ would die in our place and would be raised again so that we would come and humbly bow before him. What a beautiful picture of the sovereignty of God. He's got it. You know, and in February 2016, the, the Evangelical Union, they had a vote on this. Shall we remove Jesus as Lord or not? And it went 71 votes to one in favour of saying we are not going to remove Jesus as Lord. God's got it. And whether they had to remove it or not, and it had implications, this psalm says to each one of us, we don't have to panic or fear or worry. Psalm 2 says you can come and you can meditate and you can delight in Jesus because I've got it. I've got it. Let's pray. Father, we have been so quick to forget We've been people who have worried about tomorrow and panicked and feared. And yet this psalm, Psalm 2, of enjoying the fullness of God, it just, it just gives us hope for today. It gives us hope for tomorrow. That as we follow Jesus in this moment, you have it. And as much as people can scheme and plot and do whatever they want to do to try and remove themselves from the free, they want to free themselves from you, Father, it's pointless. So Father, now change us. Help us this week as we go out not to worry about tomorrow. Let this psalm be meditated on our, our lips day and night as we come over these next couple of years, as we seek to make and grow disciples, help us not to panic or to worry, but just to preach Christ with boldness and clarity. Father, I pray for those maybe this morning who just don't know Jesus yet. Who, who, Lord, I pray that if, if they need to come and do business with you, that you will provoke them to do that, Father, we pray. And so, Father, now help us. Lord, you are a God whose arms are open wide. You're a gracious king. 
So, Father, may we come and kiss your feet, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe maybe today, before we sing, but maybe today you do need to do business and come. I'll be in the front after the service. Please come down and see me if you, know, you need to chat about that. Or maybe you're actually just someone who is really panicky and worried about tomorrow and you just need someone to talk about with that and to pray about with. I'll be down the front and you come and do that after the service.